We are in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 this morning, and so I wanted to start just by reading that passage. I'll give you a moment to get there. Starting in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You may be seated. What I want to draw your attention to first in this passage is some of the words that stick out. We are in the midst of talking about buildings. Um, This whole series, When God Builds, we've been talking about different buildings Over the years, uh, throughout the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple that God built. And now we're going to come to a new building, a new temple that we're going to talk about today. So as you look in those four verses there, there are several words that pop out. Built, foundation, cornerstone, structure, joined together, holy temple. All of these words that are associated with this idea of building. And... As I had the opportunity to to study this the last couple weeks, to meditate on it, to think about it, something came to my mind, and that was that a building is only as good as what goes in it. That an empty building, a building with nothing in it, is really not good for anything. That actually, buildings are often defined by and named by, and and find their purpose in whatever is supposed to go in that building. What's a house without a family that lives in that house? What's a house without people living in it? It's, it's nothing. It's, it's useless. And that reminded me of a, an article I had read a couple years ago that tells a story that actually goes back about 10 years. There was a, uh, a property developer in Turkey near the Black Sea, and he had an idea for a luxury neighborhood. He wanted to build a whole neighborhood where everyone could own their own castle. So hundreds of these mini castles, and not like the dark, damp castles of the Middle Ages, but think of like a miniature Disney castle, and every person could have their own castle. That sounds pretty fun, doesn't it? I, I think that would, be, that would be pretty fun. And so they, uh, they, they got the land, they started building all of these castles, and one by one they went up, but then, unfortunately, he ran out of money, had to declare bankruptcy, and... Ten years later, they still have not finished them. They finished the exteriors of the houses. I'll show you a picture right here. You can see a neighborhood full of castles. But they're empty. The insides are bare concrete. The plumbing and electrical isn't hooked up. The streets are not finished. No one lives in them. And it shows that as, as pretty as those are, as, as neat as those are, they're not really good for anything right now because there's nothing in them. There's no people living in the houses, no people turning those houses into homes. And that's where we learn that what goes in a house is much more important than what it looks like on the outside. We're going to actually see that in a couple different ways later on this morning. And as we talk about Ephesians today... We're getting to this this new iteration of the dwelling place of God. The last few weeks, we've talked about the tabernacle and the temple, which were both the dwelling place of God. And now we're going to get to a new one. There is no longer a temple in Jerusalem. What is the new dwelling place of God today? But before we get to that, 
I actually feel like we really need to take a step back and look at the big picture of of all of Scripture, this theme of the dwelling place of God. Because as as I was studying this, that was the question that really came into my mind is, what is the significance of God having a dwelling place? Why does that matter? Why is this seen throughout all of Scripture? And we'll see how especially relevant that theme, that idea of God's dwelling place is for us today. So before we get to Ephesians, before we get to the dwelling place of God as it exists right now, let's look back at Scripture and see where God has dwelled in the past. In order to do this, we need to go all the way back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created humans, Adam and Eve, and he planted them in a garden. And that garden is the first temple that we see. It's the first dwelling place of God where humans and God dwelled together, the place where heaven and earth meets. And uh, we, don't, we don't really know a lot about what that meant. Um, God doesn't necessarily seem to be there all the time, but certainly he, humans experienced dwelling with God there at times. In Genesis 3, 8, says, and they heard that the sound, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It seems like it was normal for God to walk in the garden with them, that, they, that he would be with them and dwell with them. But as we all know, the problem came. Actually, the problem came even before that verse in Genesis 3.8. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They rebelled against God. They turned away from him to live apart from him on their own. And that sin created a barrier between them and God. There's now this, this barrier between humanity, between Adam and Eve, and between God, and he exiles them out of his dwelling place. They're no longer can they dwell with God. They're exiled out of the garden, out of the dwelling place of God, into the wilderness. But God still loved them. While they were sinners, God still loved them, and he had a plan to be with them again, to dwell with them again. After this, we see several hundred, even a thousand years go by, and although God interacts with his people, he speaks to them, he meets with them, he does not dwell with them in the same place until we get to Exodus and the tabernacle. So at this point in Exodus, God has chosen for himself a people, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, the sons of Jacob, the nation of Israel. They're God's people. He's rescued them out of slavery, out of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness, And in Exodus 25, 8, we find this verse. God says, And let them make me a sanctuary. That word's important. We're going to come back to that word later on, so so keep it in your mind. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God is going to dwell with his people again. But it's going to be a little bit different this time. He tells them to build a tabernacle, a tent, So God's going to dwell within this tent, near them, but there's going to be a separation still between God and between humans, this tent. And it's a reminder to Israel that they cannot, because of sin, they cannot dwell with God. He's going to be near them, but still separate from them. In fact, only one person once a year can go into that very special presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. And I say the very special presence of God because we know that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And yet he manifests a special presence that humans can't get near because of their sinfulness. And so although God dwells with his people, near his people, um, they're, they're not quite near enough. They're not with him in his presence like it was in Genesis. 
Well, the tabernacle, the Israelites carry that around the wilderness. Eventually, they get into the, the promised land, into the land of Israel. And it moves a couple more times until finally it settles near Jerusalem. And eventually, David has this idea that he wants to build a permanent version of the tabernacle. And so he asks if he can build a temple. And his son is given permission to build this permanent tabernacle, this dwelling place of God. And so Solomon builds the temple, and God comes to dwell there semi-permanently. You'll see in a few moments why I say semi-permanently, but that's, that's the new dwelling place of God. It was the tabernacle, now it's the temple, and God dwells in there, and it's very similar to the tabernacle. But there are these court, courts, these different places, and less and less people can get close to that very presence of God, to the Holy of Holies. You've got the court of the nations then you've got the court of the women, and then the court of the men, and then finally that, that most holy place that the high priest can only go once a year. People are still separated from the presence of God because of sin. But he's near them. He's in, the, he's in their midst. He's chosen these people, the nation of Israel, to be near them and to be their God. Now I want to pause here before we get to the next version of this and talk a little bit about, okay, so what? Why, why was it important? What mattered? What was the effect of the dwelling place of God being near these people? What impact did it have on their lives? So there's a few different um, effects that this had, a few different, if you could say, benefits of having God dwell in your midst. The first one is forgiveness of sin. They were very near to the place where you would offer sacrifices, where you could be reconciled to God, where you could be forgiven for your sin. The right place to do that was the tabernacle, was the temple. You'd go offer your sacrifices there, and you'd be forgiven for your sins. That's a good thing. To be made right with God, not in a permanent way, as we'll see later, but at least in a temporary way right then. And so they would go to the temple and do that. Another effect of this, another benefit of having the temple near you, was that it was the proper place to worship God. The temple was the right place. This was the place they were supposed to worship God. And even Jesus affirms this when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says, no, Jerusalem, the temple, that is the proper place to worship for now. We'll come back to that later for now. But at this time, this was the right place to worship God. And all humans have a desire to worship. It's built within us. We want to give praise where praise is due. In fact, our biggest problem is that we're willing to worship anything and everything besides God. Uh, But the temple was the place. Having that near to you, this is the place where we can go and we can worship God rightly. The third benefit of having the presence of God, having the dwelling place of God be near to you, was that it provided them protection for their enemy, from their enemies. God had said, I will protect you if you keep my covenant. And so as long as they kept their side of the covenant, God would protect them from their enemies. And we see this happen throughout Israel's history. We also see it not happen as well when they don't keep their end of the covenant. There's a passage I want to read that just encapsulates this, especially the Israelites, how they felt about having the, the presence of God be near them. And this is Psalm 132, and it is, um, this is a psalm of ascent. This is one of those songs they would sing on the way up to Jerusalem. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. 
What a wonderful thing it was to have God dwell in your midst, to have his dwelling place be in your nation, be right next door. But once again, that temple is also a reminder there was still a separation between God and people. It's a reminder that sin was still separating God from his people. And that, that, that barrier, that, that, that problem only grew in Israel. Eventually, their disobedience caused so much trouble that God allows their enemies to come in and to take them away. They're exiled. They're taken away from God's presence, away from the temple. And the temple itself, God's very dwelling place, was destroyed. God would not dwell there anymore at that time. But once again, even as we saw back in Genesis, God did not abandon his people. He still loved them. And so he's already got a plan for them to come back and even to rebuild that temple, to build a second temple, a second dwelling place for God. And they do that. And yet, it's just not quite the same. There's actually even a question, did God ever come back to dwell did his presence ever come back to dwell in that second temple? And they were asking that question, where is God? Will God ever dwell with his people again? And this is a dark time in Israel's history. In fact, after Malachi, there's silence. God does not speak through the prophets for 400 years, and it's not a great time for them, and there's a lot of ups and downs Still more wars and getting taken captive by people. It's not a great time for Israel. And just when it seemed to get the darkest, light came into the world. The light came into the world. John 1.14 tells us, The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And that might sound like a weird word to use, and if you look in your Bibles, it probably uses the word dwelt instead. And dwelt is a great word. This whole theme we're looking at is the dwelling place of God. And so we see the new dwelling place of God here, but that, that word dwelt is actually the noun tabernacle turned into a verb. And you can imagine that tabernacle of the Old Testament, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God himself took on a new tent a new dwelling place in the unique form of Jesus. Fully God, fully man. Jesus was the presence of God come to live on earth with his people, to save his people from their sins. And this is a whole new category of the dwelling place of God. We had the garden, we had the tabernacle, we have the temple, now we have Jesus, who is God himself, come to dwell with his people. But... He came to dwell for a specific purpose, for a specific time. He would not dwell like this forever. It's, it's to accomplish something specific. And that leads us all the way to Ephesians chapter 2. Finally, we get to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to read, before, before our passage today in verse 19, I want to read verses 13 through 18, because that'll, that'll answer some of the questions we were just asking, and it'll lead us into our passage today. Starting in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus came on earth to dwell among his people, but not just to be there with them, but also to die for them. And Jesus died on the cross for the purpose of forgiving our sins and reconciling us to God. That's what these verses we're just talking about. That because of Jesus' death on the cross, we have been reconciled to God. This solves the whole problem from the beginning. We were Sin separated us from God. We could not live with God. We could not dwell with God. And Jesus took care of that on the cross. But we see something else here as well, that sin caused a barrier not only between us and God, but also between us and other people. Sin causes problems between other peoples, and we see specifically here between God's people, the Jews, and between the rest of the world, the Gentiles. But it's also true among, among all peoples. There's conflict, there's difficulties because of sin. And yet in Christ we are made one, or together there's no more of that conflict. We're one in Christ reconciled to each other, and reconciled to God. And this is what Jesus accomplished on the cross, was to remove the barrier of sin and make it okay for us, to make it um, possible for us to dwell with God once again. So what will that look like? What does the dwelling place of God look like here and now? Before I answer that question, though, because that's really what we're dealing with here today in Ephesians 2, before I answer that, I kind of want to finish what we were talking about, because there's another passage in Revelation that just closes this whole theme. We see the dwelling place of God throughout the whole Bible. Revelation 21 finishes it off for us and helps us look forward to a a wonderful future. Revelation 21.3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We look forward in the future to physically dwelling with God once again. The dwelling place we're talking about today is spiritual, but we look forward to the physical dwelling with God once again. Like it was supposed to be from the beginning, we will dwell with him again. But for now, where does God dwell today? And I think if I was to just ask that question, if I was to ask you, where is God's dwelling place today? We think about tabernacles and temples, those, those buildings that he lived in in the past. What building does God live in today? If I was asked it that way, probably the first thought that would come to your mind might be the church. Is the church the dwelling place of God? But as even, even as we talk about church, what do we really mean by church And in order to answer that, we really need to look at Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, because here's where we get a blueprint for the church. We get a description of what the church looks like here in Ephesians chapter 2. And some of you know where I'm going with this. Some of you already know the answer, and that's okay, but just go with me, okay? Just play along. Just go with me. We'll have some fun with this. Um, Because that's what we often think of is the physical church building. We're sitting in a church building. If I say, hey, I'm going to go to church, you think of this, probably even this building, not just a building, but you think of this building. This is our church building. So we often think about that, and that, that fits, right? God dwelt in a tent, 
God dwelt in the temple, a tabernacle. He dwelt in the temple. And so it makes sense that, that the dwelling place of God is the physical church building that we have today. And, and there's a lot of them around the world, and that's great. He's got lots of dwelling places. And that's what we tend to think of when we think of church. And if we're about to, we're, we're heading towards very soon, possibly, if the Lord wills, to building a new church building, not, not rebuilding this building, but adding on to it, it'd be really good to look at what is a church supposed to look like? What are the blueprints of the church? And I really hope that our architect read Ephesians 2 before they started designing the church because we get some clues here of what it's supposed to look like. Let's just walk through each of these verses. We get some descriptions of what the church looks like. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So right here, we're talking about the people that are in the church. This is you and me. We're in the church right now. And this is, as he talks about, you're no longer strangers and aliens. This goes back to earlier in the passage that these people who were far off from God, especially the Gentiles, were far off from God, even more separated from God than the Jews were. But all people were separated from God. But not any longer. We're, we're citizens. You think about you know, all, the, all the rights and privileges of a citizen of a country that they have. Um, the saints, the saints, that's that word for holy people, for the people of God. And then that, that third phrase, members of the household of God, we're God's family. So, so these are the people that fill up the church. These are the people that come to church on Sunday, describing that. And then we get to the description of the church. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's kind of an abrupt transition there. All of a sudden, now we're into the building. And we see the foundation here. Foundations are really important to buildings, aren't they? We need to build our house on the rock. We need to have a good foundation. And that makes sense that the church needs to have a good foundation. But it's a little bit confusing because it says the, build, the, the foundation here is not rock or stone, but it's the apostles and prophets. And that gives us a clue that, well, okay, we're, we're talking metaphorically, right? This isn't talking about the, a physical foundation of a, of a physical building. This is talking about something else. And what does Paul mean when he says the apostles and prophets? Is he talking about these people? Is that what it's built on? There's actually a very simple answer to this question. What, is, what does Paul mean by apostles and prophets? The prophets, this was a very general way of talking about the authors of the Old Testament or even talking about the Old Testament itself. You would say, well, what the prophets said to our forefathers, talking about the Old Testament scripture. In the same way, we could say what the apostles wrote, what the apostles said. That's a way of talking about the New Testament. And so, uh, very simply, this foundation of the church is God's word. What the apostles and prophets wrote down, that is the foundation of the church. It's God's word, scripture, the Bible. And once again, we can't be talking physically here. It's not that we're going to take a bunch of the old pew Bibles and lay them out and build the church on top of that. There's, there's something different going on. But what a sure foundation to have God's word, his revelation revealing himself, who he is and what we are to do, having that be the foundation of the church. We couldn't have a sure foundation than that, especially when you consider that next phrase, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That most important piece of the foundation, the, piece of, the rest of the foundation is, is built off of, is ordered after, 
is Jesus Christ. And what's another name for Jesus? We read it earlier in John. The Word. If God's Word is our foundation, Christ Jesus, the incarnate Word, is the most important part of that foundation. God's Word, Jesus Christ, that is the foundation of the church. That is what the whole church is built upon. Is the Bible is Jesus Christ himself, whom we know about through Scripture, how it's been revealed to us through his word. In verse 21, we get some more of those words that come up, in whom the whole structure being joined together. Um, now, now, we've talked about the foundation, now we're talking about the structure. This is where we really get to that physical building, right? That, that structure, you need walls, you need a roof, um, and you need to join it together. Joinery, um, whether, you know, nails and screws, glue, metal brackets. You think about all the different ways that you hook um, wood or stone, bricks, mortar, how you hook all of that together. You need good joinery. So we've got this, this structure. It's joined together. Then it gets kind of weird. Because it says, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, the temple makes sense, right? The, the temple was a physical building. And, and the church is a physical building, Right? But buildings don't grow. If, if your building's growing, you might have a mold problem or something. It wouldn't be good for a building to grow. And it's here where maybe we start to think something else is going on. How, how is this physical building that we talk about, the church, how is it growing? Something else must be going on here. And verse 22 gives us the answer. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is the dwelling place of God right here, right now? It is the church, but it's not the church building. And this is a reminder for all of us that the church is not the building. The church is the people. The church is us. And that brings us back to verse 19. Verse 19 wasn't talking about what goes in the church. It was talking about the church. The citizens, the saints, the members of the household of God, they are the church that is built on the foundation of God's word on the foundation, on the cornerstone of Christ Jesus that's joined together, the body of Christ joined together that grows into a holy temple in the Lord that is being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God. And I don't want you to miss how huge this is, how significant this is to realize that God himself dwells within us. The very presence of the almighty, holy God dwells within us. And this is only made possible because Jesus gave himself on the cross. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility. He broke down the separation that between, was between us and God. Because of our sin, we have been forgiven for our sins. And no, God can dwell with us again. And in fact, he dwells within us. We, you, are the dwelling place of God. Now this is so big, but it's also kind of abstract. It's hard to get our minds around. I think as I thought about this, I'm amazed at how fantastical this is, how wonderful this is, and yet, what does it really mean to be the place where God dwells? What does it really mean that God dwells Within us. And that's what I want to get into when it comes to application today. That's why application is so important to this. 
How does this work itself out in our day-to-day lives? Because if it's just an idea, we, we don't really get it. We can't really grab a hold of it. But the more we understand the implications and the applications that we are the dwelling place of God, the better we will be able to see it in our lives. As we get into that, though, I want to I recognize a truth, that the tension we feel between this. There is a reality that us as individuals are the church, right? The different body parts that make up the church. Us as individuals, we are the dwelling place of God. We have the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 talks about this. Well, just read all of Romans 8. It talks about this. Uh, Romans 8, 9 says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, the positive way of saying that is anyone who does have the Spirit of Christ does belong to him. And that means that all of us individually have the Holy Spirit living within us, and the Holy Spirit is God. We have the presence of God living in us. Each of us individually are the dwelling place of God. So on one side, we have that. As individuals, we are the dwelling place of God. But we also know that there's a truth to the corporate aspect of church as well. That, that we together are the church. Even that word church is the called out ones, is the assembly. It, it signifies, it implies people gathering together. We are not meant to be the church alone on our own at home. We are the church as we gather together. Uh, even in Ephesians, we see some of the language that's used here that, that tells us that. Um, those yous, all of those, those yous that we find in the section we just read are all plural. Okay? It should be y'all. I'm still waiting for that Texas translation of the Bible that would help clear some of that up for us. Y'all also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's, there's also a corporate aspect to this that we gathered as the people of God, coming together as God's people, are being built into this holy temple, are being built into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And so as we get into application, I'm going to start with individual each time, but then I'm going to also move and show you how it it gets even better when we think about this in terms of us together as a church, as a local church together. So the first application of this is live with God or life with God. And what I mean by this is talking about our relationship with God. And this is, this is the most important because this is the core at what God had a desire to do. This, this brings us all the way back to the beginning and that whole separation and reconciliation issue. That, that God created us to rule with him, to be with him. And then sin separated us from God and he had a desire to bring us back into relationship with him, that we could be with him. And that's accomplished now through this. At least spiritually, we can have a relationship with God because the Holy Spirit lives within us. He is near to us. We're no longer separated by the walls of a tent or a temple. We're no longer, we no longer have to go through a priest to come before God. We, all have, we are the dwelling place of God, so we can be with God here and now. We can pray to him and know that he hears our prayers. We can experience his presence in our lives. We can be with him. We can abide with him. We can live with him. We can be with him. And this is the reality of that relationship with God. And and we experience that when we read his word, when we we pray. Uh, All of those aspects of, of having a relationship with someone else are true about our relationship with God as we talk with him, as we rest in his grace. And that's what God's desire was. That's what he wanted from the very beginning was to have a relationship with us. And 
it makes me think of that whole idea of the difference between a house and a home. That house is the structure, but the home is the family, right? To have a home, you need the people living in the house. And I was thinking about that this last week. Um, I've, I've mentioned before in sharing sermon illustrations that uh, we've been remodeling our house. We started about a year and a half ago remodeling the interior of our house. And last spring, we got most of it finished up. But there was still one room in our house that we hadn't done. And so a few weeks ago, we actually started on that room. We did the floors last weekend. We're almost there. Uh, Just a few last-minute things, and we will have completely remodeled the inside of our house. And I was thinking about it last week. What would happen if we get it all finished up? Every last detail, or for the most part, every last detail is done. And then, and this gets kind of dark, so I apologize, but a week later, what if I just died in a car accident? Don't think about this too much, Jill. <laughs> but do you, think, do you think in that moment, do you think Jill would be comforted by the fact that I had finished remodeling the house? You think she'd be like, well, at least he waited to die until he had finished remodeling it. You know, what a pity it would have been to have an unfinished house and not have him there to finish it. You know, is that what she would be thinking about in that moment? I bet she could care less. She couldn't care less about the remodel at that point. In fact, she'd probably want to move because it would remind her of me. And that's just a reminder that it's not about, you know, it doesn't matter where you live, it matters who you're with. The whole idea of a family is not the house that you live in, it's the people that you're with. And it's the same thing with God. This, this whole idea isn't about benefits that we get or, or some sort of pride that God lives within me. It's about a relationship that we have with him that he wants to draw near to us. He knows us We have an opportunity to know him personally because we've been reconciled to him, because he dwells within us. That's true individually, but it's even more true as we gather together. You know, I get to know God more when I'm with you. There's things that you notice in Scripture that I don't notice. That helps me to know God more when I spend time with all of you. Uh, Hearing your experiences experiences with God that are different than my experiences with God helps me to know something more of him. How much better do I get to know God when we gather together and know him together? And that that relates to our calling as we have identified as a church, saying to know and follow Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus. We do this together. The second application, the first one is just that relationship with God. The second one is that we have power for new life. A whole big part of this is that we have been forgiven, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. It's all by grace. But then we're filled with the Holy Spirit to live a new life, to live in obedience, right? For, for works that God has prepared from beforehand, that we would walk in them. And so there's this, this call to live a Christ-like life, to be more like Christ. But we can only do that because the Holy Spirit has given us power for a new life because God dwells within us. Romans 8 says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us today and gives life to our mortal bodies. How wonderful is that? Because God dwells within us, he gives us new life. He gives us power over sin. And this is a contrast to the Israelites' experience. They gave in to sin time and time and time again. There's, there's very, they have very short periods of time where they're not, where they are following God. How quickly they, not just, in the Israelites, as you read through the Old Testament, it wasn't just 
they got apathetic towards God or they're kind of like, you know, yeah, he exists, but I'm going to go over here. They, they went all the way over to the other side. Immediately, they start worshiping other gods and trusting in them instead. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. For the most part, at times the Holy Spirit would empower some of them for certain tasks, but for the most part, they didn't have the Holy Spirit to give them new life in Christ. And so we see them fail time and time again. But we have a new life that's now made possible because the Holy Spirit lives within us. And I've seen this in my life. I've seen this in my struggle with sin. And as I was thinking about it, that word actually fits well, my struggle with sin. The Israelites didn't struggle with sin, they just gave into it. I'm being a little unfair to them, but right? Like if apart from Christ, we don't struggle with sin, we just give into it, we just do it. But it's because I'm in Christ, because the Holy Spirit works in me, that I fight against sin, that I have any power at all to resist the temptation and to live a new life in Christ. One of those areas I've seen, and I know a lot of you can probably understand where I'm coming from, is uh, some sin that came out in my life I didn't know was there was after I had kids. And, and the anger and frustration that comes out when my kids won't listen to me, when they won't do what I've asked them to do, and how frustrating that can get. And I can tell you, when I'm not walking with the Spirit, when I'm not trusting in God, it doesn't turn out well. I end up yelling at them. I end up trying to get this, this moral behavior out of them. Just obey, just do what I tell you to do. This reward system, all of those kinds of things, and it doesn't go well. But if I pause for just a moment and I pray, in the midst of something going on, if I just stop and I go, Lord, help me right now. Help me to live by your spirit, not by my flesh. It's a totally different experience, a totally different situation. That I'm patient. I say, let's have a conversation about this. Now, there's still discipline. There still needs to be discipline. God disciplines us. But it looks so much different. I don't exasperate my children. I point them towards Christ. I point them towards the need of a Savior. And I'm reminded of my need for the Holy Spirit in my life. And so I've, I've seen the Holy Spirit change my life in the way that I interact with my kids. I'm, I'm growing. I'm being built into a holy place for God by the Spirit. Now, this happens individually, but it also, how much better is it as a church when we gather together? I need Sunday morning, I need to gather together with you to, to praise and worship God together. I need to hear from God's Word together because it's a reminder, it's accountability each week to hear from the Lord as a group together to keep each other accountable. I need my discipleship group that meets on Wednesday mornings, that keeps me accountable, where I have an opportunity to share those struggles and those sins with them. And they encourage me, and they, they hold me accountable to it. And it's just those reminders throughout the week, not just once a week, but throughout the week, of how much I need the Holy Spirit and what it means to have the presence of God living in me, that I don't do it on my own, but I trust in His power. The third application. So we have our life with God, our relationship with God, we have power for new life because God dwells within us. But then this third one, I really like this third one. We live as tabernacles in the wilderness. And this came out actually of our, of our discussion in the, the Monday morning workshop last week. And I was so thankful because this is so important for us to remember. Just as the Israelites 
carried the presence of God around with them in the tabernacle, wherever they went in the wilderness and eventually into the promised land, we too are tabernacles. We're the new tabernacles. We're the new tents, the place where God dwells. We have an opportunity to carry his presence around to the world that we live in, to the people around us. Now, on an individual level, we go to people at work, we go to friends and family members, our neighbors, people at the store, any of those places, wherever we go, we have an opportunity to show God's presence, to show who God is to those people because God dwells within us. And we do that through our words and through our actions. We show the glory of God in the wilderness of the world that we live in. As a church, we've also had an opportunity to do this. As a church, we've been a tabernacle. We've been a light in this community for 160 years. We have been, had the opportunity to reveal God's presence to the people around us. For the last 129 years, we've been on this corner with that opportunity, meeting every Sunday with an opportunity to do that. Now, if the Lord wills, that's going to change, at least temporarily, for a little while. Pretty soon, this may become a construction zone, and we're going to be packing up that tabernacle, and we're going to be taking it over to Prairie High School each week. But what an opportunity that is to turn Prairie High School into the dwelling place of God for a few hours every Sunday. Now, that actually brings up something. I want to, I want to take a couple minutes because I think that this illustrates something well for us to understand this morning. I want to bring up a debate in this church. And it's not a debate about the building project. It's a different debate. And it's the debate of what to call this room right here. What do you refer to this room that we're in right here? What do you refer to it as? Now, there's, there's two main terms that we might use. The first one, this is the older, more traditional term that we might use for this room. What would you call it? Sanctuary. sanctuary. That's right. That's the, the older, more traditional term, sanctuary. What's the newer, more modern one that we might use? Auditorium. That's right. And I know, I can tell on your faces, you've got some, you know, some, some strong feelings about this debate. What should we call this room? Now, we've got a big sign over there on the side, not in here, but outside, that says Auditorium. And some of you I know have commented, why are we calling this the auditorium? So before, we, before I solve the debate, which I, I'm going to do this morning, actually. I can solve this debate, I promise you. Before I solve that, I'll mention, that was a practical decision, um, because for people that may not have grown up going to church, they might be confused by the word sanctuary. What's going on here? Is this a bird sanctuary? I don't know. And so auditorium was a more clear, general word that could be used for this building. Okay? But apart from that, what should we call this room? What should we refer to it as? Well, let me ask you, what it, it relates to what the word sanctuary means. Sanctuary is related to another word you might know of sanctification, and it relates to the word holy or sacred. Pastor Bob talked about sacred places last week, and so we like the idea of calling this a sanctuary because we, we think of this as a holy place, a sacred place. Well, let me ask you, is this a sacred place? Well, for, three, for a few hours every Sunday, when God's people are here, this is the very dwelling place of God because we are here, because God's saints, God's holy people are here. And so for a few hours every Sunday, this 100% is the sanctuary. It is. What about the rest of the week when it's empty, though? It's just an auditorium. There's nothing special about it. 
Because this gets back to that idea that the building is not the dwelling place of God. We, you and me, we are the dwelling place of God. We are what, and, and don't get too prideful about this because it's not anything about you. It's, it's who's, in, who's within you. We are the ones who make this place holy because God dwells within us. And he is holy. He is making us holy. And this is the sanctuary while we meet here. So feel free to call it that on Sunday mornings, but the rest of the week just refer to it as the auditorium. But how, how cool actually is it, though, that if the Lord wills, we will begin to build a new building here in a couple months. And for a few hours every Sunday, we get to turn Prairie High School's auditorium, we get to turn it into a sanctuary that that will be the dwelling place of God. In a public high school, we will turn it into the dwelling place of God. And that reminds us that the building doesn't matter. The people are the church. And we have an opportunity, if the Lord wills, when we go over to Prairie, we have an opportunity to leave a good-smelling aroma when we leave each Sunday or a bad-smelling aroma when we leave each Sunday. And my prayer is that we would have a good impact over there, that they would rejoice, that for some reason, maybe even beyond their understanding, they would see it as a wonderful thing for us to meet there. And if the Lord wills, one day we'll come back here to a new building. And, and I, I hope that they actually miss us and are sad when we're gone. I hope that's the kind of legacy that we can leave over there as the dwelling place of God. But one day, if the Lord wills, we will come back to a new building. And it's going to be great to have a new building. There's, there's nothing wrong with the building, by the way. In fact, God's people, we, practically, we need a place to gather each week. If we're going to gather, we need a place to gather each week. And so we need a functional building. And it's not even bad to have a beautiful building, to have a place where we want to come, where we want to invite others to come as well to worship God. That's a wonderful thing. But don't get too attached to it. Don't, in the midst of all of that, forget that the church building is not the place where God dwells. We are the dwelling place of God. You can even think of the disciples sitting on the steps of the temple, point, talking to Jesus, pointing to it and saying, isn't this so wonderful how great this temple is? When the true temple, the very presence of God, was sitting right in front of them. What a humbling and fearful thing it is to be the place where God dwells. But praise be to God who would choose you and me to be the place where he makes his home. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you with so much gratitude. It's beyond our understanding. Um, God, even this truth that you have made us, this mystery that you have made us your dwelling place, God, that we cannot fathom the depths of what that means. And yet, Lord, I, I pray that we would understand on some level the truth of that this morning. Lord, I pray that we would understand how that impacts our opportunity to know you. That because you live within us, we can know you through your word, through prayer. We can live with you each and every day, that you abide with us. Lord, I pray that we would see how this gives us a power for new life. That the Holy Spirit gives us power to live righteously before you. That we're not, no longer slaves to sin, but we're free in Christ to live a new life in him because you dwell within us. Lord, I pray that we would be tabernacles in the wilderness. 
that we would bring God's, your presence wherever we go, that we would show the world your glory, your grace, your love, that we would show them your presence, that very presence that lives within us. God, I pray that we would appreciate the place that we have to come and gather each Sunday, but we wouldn't focus too much on it. We would focus rather on the one who lives within us, that we would give you all praise and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.